Welcome. We've been talking about transformation and change during this sermon series called Metamorphosis. And I was struck by this, this fact. Um, this last song that we just sang, how great, the, how deep the Father's love for us. Um, essentially what I've been trying to say during this sermon series is that if the truth of those lyrics that you just sang, the truth of that song, once it becomes embedded in your heart, more than here, the truth of what you just sang, if the truth of those words could somehow be transferred from here to here, that's when the beginning of transformation will begin to occur. Transformation in the Christian life is not an outside-in kind of a deal. It's not an external to an internal uh, route of change. Transformation and change in the Christian life, growth in the Christian life is always internal to external. Christian life and transformation doesn't, let me put it this way, change and transformation doesn't happen because external, you pray a lot, you read the Bible a lot, you're disciplined, you're morally good, you're just doing all these things, and somehow you configure your heart to change. No, transformation happens when the truth and the reality of Christ, his death and resurrection, and yours and my new identity in that internal, when that captures, melts our hearts. Internally, then externally, change and transformation occurs. And, and we've been trying to say for the last seven weeks, how does that internal to external route of change occur? Uh, there's a word we love in our church. It's a Greek technical word. It's called palingenesia. You all say that with me. Ready? Palingenesia. Now, for those of you that have never heard that word, that word is huge in our church. I've never heard that word. It appears only two times in the entire New Testament, once in Matthew and once in the book of Titus. Okay? Palingenesia. Palingenesia is a Greek technical word. Let me tell you what it meant and then show you in Scripture where it occurs. It was a Greek technical word, and it literally meant regenesis, okay? Regenesis. And what that word, what that word uh, meant and what the people during the time used it was to refer to, they believed that the world, the universe as they knew it, society, culture as they knew it, was constantly sort of uh, heading towards disarray, disconnect, heading towards disintegration, morally, culturally, ethically, so on and so forth. Everything was just headed down to the route of, of, of disintegration. And so once in a while, there was this regenesis, palingenesia, where the entire universe went through this purging, cleansing, renewing process, and everything in the universe was remade or reborn, okay? Now, because they believed, though, that the that, that world history was cyclical and not linear, in other words, this process happened over and over and over again, depending on how bad the world got, okay? It happened over and over again. Now, Jesus uses this word once in the book of Matthew, and he had the audacity to not just say it, it's going to happen over and over again, but he said there's going to be a time when there will be the palingenesia, once and for all. And guess where it appears? It appears in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. At the, and there's that word, renewal, palingenesia of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. Here's what Jesus is literally saying. And here's why we, use, we love this word here in our church. Jesus is saying there's going to come a time when the entire universe, entire world, will go through a rebirth, a regenesis, a re renewal process. And here's what he says. It's not going to happen over and over again. He says there will come a time when this will happen once and for all and everything in the world, everything in the universe, all that has been marred by sin and death, everything will be cleansed, Everything will be renewed. Everything will be remade. When is that going to happen? At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on the throne. When? When the kingdom of God and the rule and reign of God comes into the world. Everything will be remade. Everything will be reborn. Everything will be renewed. This is the motivation for our church and why we do the stuff that we do out in the world. We believe that the world, as we know it, is not going to be discarded. 
We believe that the world as we know it is not just going to be thrown away. The world as we know it isn't just going to be left to burn for itself while Christians get delivered and go up to heaven. Whatever. Well, we believe in our church that the entire world is going to go through a renewal, rebirth, remaking process, and we are going to be a part of that. Amen? That's great news. Now, here's the amazing thing. This word appears one other time in the entire New Testament. Guess where it appears? It appears in the book of Titus. Let me show you. Book of Titus, it says, But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. It's sort of summary of what we've been talking about. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. The word renewal. Palingenesia, by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is an unbelievable statement by Paul. He is saying, look, look, look. This renewal, this this universal cosmic cleansing thing that's going to come and renew the whole world is right now partially coming into where? Into your life into my life. This renewal, this, this, this rebirthing process is coming not just to renew the entire universe, but Christ says when we receive him as our Lord and Savior, this power, this work of God through the Spirit is coming into your life right now. Do you know what that means? Christianity is not moral reformation. Christianity is not good people becoming better people. Christianity is not bad people becoming nice. Christianity is total transformation. It's taking dead people and making them alive. It's making morally bankrupt people and making them godly and putting God's DNA into them. Do you know what this means? For those of you that are still going, connect the dots for me. Oh my gosh, give up your small ambitions of what Christianity is. You don't become a Christian just to get some peace in your heart so I can find the right person to marry. Get a little guidance here and there. Christianity is all transforming power of God coming into your life right now, making you totally new. Come on, give up your smile. I'm a Christian, so I want some peace and some joy and some nice person to marry and some guidance and a house and a pic. Ugh! Is that the sum total of your Christian life? Is that the sum total of my Christian life? Give up your small, tiny little dreams, people. What does God have in store for you? Palingenesia. And when this comes into your life and my life, transformation. Now, how does that happen? Here's the key. It doesn't happen just you go because you go, I let go and let God. God, I'm just here. No, it's an active, ongoing thing. Here, let me put up a definition here for you. For those of you that were not here last week, let me put up a definition here for you of the gospel, okay? Now we're taking the gospel, definition of the gospel in a much more holistic way. The gospel is the good news that through Christ, the power of God's kingdom has entered history to renew the whole world. That's Matthew 19, 28, cosmic scale. Titus 3, 5 and 6 is when we believe and rely on Jesus' work and record for our relationship to God, Titus 3, 5, then that kingdom power comes on us, into us, and begins to transform and renew us. And we've been talking about the gospel a lot. You know what? People come and ask me all the time, Peter, who influences you to kind of think about things you do, talk about things you do? And I want to actually share with you guys this morning, the first part, the whole aspect, the palingenesia, the cosmic work of God. Anybody ever a guy named N.T. Wright? Look, read anything and everything that N.T. Wright has written, okay? Because for me, devouring him and all his writings has really forced me to just kind of look at the entirety of the Christian life as being so much more than just my personal growth and health and leading and guidance and I feel joy and everything is good. It's about the cosmic work of God. The second portion of this gospel, gospel transformation, relying on Christ's work, so on and so forth, is a very little-known pastor, actually, who uh, influenced lots of famous as well as not so famous pastors. There's a guy named Jack Miller. 
Has anybody heard of a guy named C. Jack Miller? They're really surprised. No. But let me ask you this. Has anybody heard of a guy named Tim Keller? Oh, yeah. Tim Keller was pastored by a guy named C. Jack Miller. And C. Jack Miller is this little known, uh, uh, not so well-known guy, I should say, who pastored a number of pastors, and he wrote a book called Gospel Transformation. It's a workbook. For me, coming to grips with that, coming to grips with this gospel transformation and this very simple and yet yet powerful transforming concept of, of what it means for us to rely on the work of Christ and finding our identity in him in such a way that God's kingdom power comes into our lives has literally changed me, everything, everything about me, everything about me. Matter of fact, I was thinking, just as a show of hands, if we offered a class or a course on gospel transformation. So we dig into what we've been talking about the last four or five weeks. Would anybody be interested in that? Like, raise your hands high. I'm serious. I, okay. Michael, you seen this? Okay. 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 You know what? I think we're going to go and offer it. I think we're going we're gonna to dig into this thing and grab a hold of this thing and not let go. Okay? So what we've been doing, you guys, for the last six, seven weeks is talking about this aspect of transformation as we rely on Christ's work and his transforming power. Today is the last sermon. So for those of you that are going, I'm tired of hearing this. Great news. Okay, we move it on. For those of you that have been going, I'm still kind of not getting it. I just, uh, one more just to kind of wrap and kind of, well, the good news for you today too. We've been saying that there's a two-part dynamic in the Christian life. What are they? The first is... I don't care if one person says it. Somebody say it. The first is repentance. Yes. First is repentance, right? It's Jesus. It's always Jesus. You'll never go wrong. First answer. It's always Jesus. Repentance. And second is what? Faith. Belief. Yes. There's a two-part dynamic, okay? And these two-part dynamic is sort of at work in our hearts and in our soul. It's repentance and it's faith. It's repentance in our faith. It's not just how we begin the Christian life, but it's an ongoing thing. Did you know that this dynamic is found throughout the New Testament on how change occurs? Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Constantly. Let me show you. If you you got to read your Bibles differently. Look at this, okay? You don't have to turn your Bibles. Let me just go ahead and read these for you. Colossians chapter 1, which we looked at. Listen to the two-part dynamic, okay? Colossians 2 part. It said, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated, who is your life. Which part is this? This is the positive part. This is the faith part. This is the belief part. And then Paul says, a little bit down the line, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, which is idolatry. He says, you want key to transformation and change? And if you read Colossians 3, rest of the chapter talks about what you need to do and what you need to not do. But the key, he says, is two-part dynamic. Faith, repentance. Faith, repentance. Another example. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. He says, Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who sat down at the right hand of God. Again, that's the positive dynamic of faith, of who Christ is and what he has done. The negative part, so let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. That's repentance. Repentance. Another example. Romans chapter 8, passage we've been looking at. Those who live in accordance with the spirit of their mindset on what the spirit desires, those led of the spirit are sons of God. Positive repentance, faith. The negative part, he said, is, verse 13, if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, then you will live. Constantly throughout the New Testament, if you want transformation and change before you do the external to internal, he says, the process is two-part dynamic of repentance for idols, for besetting sins in our lives, and uprooting them at the motivational level. And the positive dynamic is faith, is belief in what Christ has done on the cross through his death and resurrection, our absolute and utter acceptance, unconditional acceptance in Christ before God, and our utterly secure position in him as sons and daughters, as children of God. This two-part dynamic has to be constantly at work in our lives to deal with everyday issues as well as deep-seated life changes. And here's the thing. You ready? You can't have one without the other. They both have to be at work. If you have one without the other, then it loses its gospel-transforming, heart-changing power. What do I mean? On the one hand, 
Unless you realize the significance and the intensity of our besetting sin, the sin of idolatry, and the extreme nature of what we have done before God. Some of us, the cross is trivial. The cross is kind of, yeah, you know, Jesus died for me, but, uh, and it fails to grab a hold of our hearts, grab a hold of our souls, and cause us to go, he died for me. He died for me. That part dynamic. And then the other, on the other hand, unless you realize your absolute and unconditional love that God has for you and your Uh, your position in Christ and your security in Christ, the weight of our sin, the weight of our sinfulness, the weight of the areas in our lives that we need to change will crush us. And we'll either repress it, we'll either deny it, and we'll never deal with it. I said this last week, remember? And I want to repeat it again for those of you that weren't here. Some people say, you know what? It's very unhealthy to say you're a sinner. It's very unhealthy to go, I'm a sinner. Unhealthy? To say that and admit that you're a sinner before God, it's a sign of ultimate health. What do I mean? Unless you can go, I am a sinner saved by the grace of God, and I've got all these other areas of my life that I don't even know about yet. And yet, God, my heavenly Father, knows it all. And He has covered me. He has died for me. He has risen for me. And the determining factor in my relationship with God is not my past or my present, but it's Christ's past and Christ's present. That will give you confident joy to walk in your Christian life. There's some of us here, because we have not, listen, because we have not fully embraced this aspect of being in Christ, unconditional love the Father has for us, and secure in that, and confident joy in that, you know what the result is? The result naturally will be you're going to repress your sin. You're going to deny your weaknesses. You're going to wear masks. You're going to constantly go around and and spin things and kind of do this just to cover up. And, And the result is an absolute and utter despair in your soul. What will give you confidence to go, I am weak. I do struggle. I am a sinner. I've got issues in my life. And it doesn't mean that that's okay. But what is okay is, and God the Father, my Heavenly Father knows it all. So I don't need to hide from you. I don't need to hide from God because I'm secure. I'm established in Him. And I can approach this relationship with confidence. Ah. Some of you that are sitting here and you're struggling with some besetting sin and, and just and you're just afraid and masks and layers and layers and layers and there's no accountability and you're in secret and isolation, you're hiding, I guarantee you, at the root of it, you refuse to accept and embrace and believe that you are secure in your heavenly Father. That's why I've been talking about this so much. So unless you get to that and understand that, You'll constantly hide. You'll constantly wear masks. You'll constantly be afraid. You'll constantly be insecure. Look, can I just, if you're going, I don't, I don't relate. I don't relate. Doesn't this, isn't this a dynamic in human relationships? Think about your spouse. Think about your closest friends. Think about your community. If you don't believe that there's unconditional love and acceptance and security there, are you even going to come close to opening up and being real? H-E-C-K, heck no. I'm really sleep deprived. That's why I'm like acting. I am, sorry. I'm just... Okay. Look, today... For the remainder of the time, I've got like one last shot. I've got like one last shot to look at perhaps the the condensed, the the focal point when you wrap all these things together, what it means to be in Christ, the thing, the thing that determines who we are, and that is because of Christ, we are sons and daughters of God. Will you say that with me? Sons and daughters of God. Once again, ready? Sons and daughters of God. 
J.F. Packer said this. He said, if you want to see whether a Christian truly understands Christianity, he said, go ask him if they understand this truth that they are sons and daughters of God because of what Christ has done. He says, if everything that you do is not ultimately prayer, fellowship, everything is not motivated by this deep-seated belief in truth, that you are a son, you are a daughter of God, he says that you do not understand Christianity. And I agree with him. I agree with him. And if you want to see what really ails us at the end of the day and all the issues and problems we have, if you boil it down to root motivation level, it's this. Let me do a, let me do a little exercise with you. Think of friends or parents or family members or people that you have that you know are struggling with just major issues, you know, dysfunctional issues, whether it be besetting sin and stuff. Okay, you thinking about somebody right now? Okay, all right. At the end of the day, if that person embraces truth, that because of the crisis and what he has done, that they are absolutely, utterly, unconditionally accepted and loved by God so that he is their identity, he is their security, he is their all in all. If they really and truly embrace that, would it help with the issues that they're wrestling with? Not if you think yes. Yeah? Okay. Here's a question though. What about you? See, it's easy for us to go, oh yeah, that person, oh yeah, if they just got this, oh, if they just embr- What about you and me? I said this last week. When I'm overworked, stretched, and my relationship with my wife suffers, I'm a terrible father, so on and so forth, people can go, well, he's just made an idol out of work, out of his, blah, blah, blah. and that's simple, you know, so I, so Peter, just stop it, just stop working so hard, just, just stop it. Just stop it. That doesn't work. Let's go a layer deeper. Well, why does Peter want to work so hard? Ah, he preached pretty bad last Sunday. Oh, yeah. That was pretty bad. And he knew it because there were people falling asleep. The people dozing off. The people tuning out. And so what did Peter do? Well, Peter went home and said, well, I better make sure I preach a good sermon this Sunday. So you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to like work 80 hours. So I'm not going to be home. I'm not going to eat right. I'm not going to sleep right, exercise right. I'm just going to. And some people go, well, Peter, just don't do that. Just spend 30 or 40 minutes on it. Why, why, why? Or 30, 30, 40 minutes. That's what it seemed like. He only spent 30, 40 minutes on that sermon. That's why it's stuck. But why does he want, why, why does he want to, do, let's go deeper, layer deeper, ready? And you know what it is at the root motivational level? Root motivational level is this. It's that I say to myself, God, I know that I'm your son. I know that I'm your daughter. And you are my heavenly father. And you have done all this for me. And I'm unconditionally secure and so on and so forth. But you know what, God? Preaching is my real identity. Being a good pastor is my real security. Oh, people going, that was the best sermon ever. By the way, nobody ever says that to me, but that was the best sermon. Like that, oh, that's what I live for. You know what affects my marriage and me as a husband and wife? It's the fact that I am not secure and sure of who I am in Christ. Why do some of you continue to get in dysfunctional relationships? Why do your friends just go crazy going, are you stupid? Are you crazy? Are you kidding me? That relationship, him, her? And you're going, what? I don't, what? I just, what? What? And you're going, that's the 10th time, like in the last two months. What in the world is going on? Look, you can go all you want, like, come on, you know, stop it, stop it. Let's go again. Layer, 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 layer. And at the bottom, at the root, is that woman who says, I so long... I know that God's my God, and I'm his, he's a heavenly father, I'm his daughter, but I, this is more important, what he thinks, what he says. My son, last Sunday, came up to me as I was putting him to bed, and he grabbed a hold of me, and he said, Daddy, I love you. Daddy, I love you. I bring tears to my eyes. And I held him back and I said, Parker, I love you too. Daddy loves you. What just happened there? Was there any new information being shared? Did Parker all of a sudden realize before I put him to bed, he's my daddy. I think he's pretty cool. I think I'm going to tell him I love him and I'm going to hug him. There's no more new information being shared. We're just experiencing the relationship that already exists. My prayer today 
is that great percentage of you who say, I love you, I love you, I know you love me, I love you, I know you love, that somehow you would walk out of here experiencing it. There's no more new information that needs to be shared. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Although I've preached on Romans before, I've actually never fully delved into these passages. So I'm a bit excited today about delving into these passages with you. Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 12. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. For the first time, Paul introduces the concept of adoption, concept of adoption in the book of Romans. But here's the thing. In verse 15, when he says, you did not receive a spirit of fear again to slavery, but you received the spirit of sonship. And when he introduces this, this, this concept of adoption, he's actually reiterating what he's already talked about throughout the book of Romans. What do I mean? His designation for you did not receive a spirit of fear, but a spirit of sonship is the same thing that he's been saying from verses 1 and on saying, do not live according to the sinful nature, but live according to the spirit. Do not mind the things of the sinful nature, but mind the things of the spirit. And here in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, he, as he contrasts this, it's essentially a summary of everything that he's talked about. In other words, he's saying, do you want to know what the key is to minding the things of the Spirit? We talked about that. And minding the things of this flesh? Do you want to know how to go about living according to the Spirit and not living according to the flesh? He says, you need to learn how to live in the spirit of sonship and not live in the spirit of fear as a slave. And here's the incredible thing. The difference that he's making here of living according to the flesh, living according to the spirit, and living as a son and living as a slave is not Christian lives that way and a non-Christian lives this way. It's not a difference between a Christian. Christians live minding the things of this flesh. Christians live according to the sinful nature. Christians still live in a spirit of fear as a slave. You can be a good, moral, ethical person and still live. So the difference is not, are you a Christian or not? The difference is two different approaches to life. What is your approach to life? Are you approaching life full of fear as a slave? Or are you approaching life full of confident joy as a child of God? As a child of God. One real quick thing before I go on here. You know, a lot of times when we come to these passages, the word slavery and the concept of slavery evokes some powerful emotions in many of us because our context is slavery and the atrocities of it in this country. But slavery in the Roman culture was very common. Slavery during Roman times in first century Rome was very common. Here's the big, big differences between slavery in Roman times as, and the slavery as our, as our country experienced. So number one, slavery in Rome was not race-based and it wasn't for a lifetime. Okay, people, people put themselves into slavery in order to pay off debts. It was almost like indentured service. Okay, so people in Rome, because they owed a tremendous amount of debt, intentionally and voluntarily to the people that they owned, regardless of race or ethnicity, put themselves under this master or this owner in order to pay off their debts. That's what slavery was. There were times when the slaves, because they were treated so favorably by their masters, actually, this is Old Testament, right? They pierced their ears as a sign of commitment to their master and saying, I will be with you. I will be with you and I will serve you. And people voluntarily put themselves into it. Very radically different from what our country experienced in terms of slavery. Why is that significant? Because the purpose of the book of Romans, the entirety of it, is to get you and I to see 
our position is justified. And you and I to see that we no longer have to live still as a slave full of fear. But because of what Christ has done, we can live our lives as sons and daughters of God. We can live our lives as sons and daughters of God. That we don't have to approach life anymore from the perspective of living in fear as a slave, but could approach God in confidential as a child of God. What does it mean the Bible says that we are sons and daughters of God? You know, this is one of those things, as I was studying this passage, I realized we throw this word around a lot, all the time. We're a child of God, you're a child of God, I'm a child of God, son, daughter of God. But until you and I understand the context, this won't really hit home. Listen to this. Here's how adoption worked in the Roman culture, okay? Here's how one historian put it. Adoption was pretty common in Roman society. It usually occurred when a wealthy adult had no heir for his estate. He would then adopt someone as an heir. And here's the interesting thing that I didn't know. That heir that he adopted could be a child, it could be a youth, and sometimes it was a full-grown adult. Heirs that were adopted. The moment the adoption occurred, several things were immediately true of the new son. And I put them up there. And all of these things are in the background when Paul talks about sons and daughters of God. Here are the things that happened the moment of adoption. Number one, his old debts and legal obligations were canceled. When an heir was adopted by this family or by this, by this uh, wealthy person, all of, the, all of his old debts and legal obligations were canceled. Secondly, he got a new name and was instantly heir of all that the father had. For those of you that kind of read the New Testament through this lens, do you, can you see how many times Paul in the New Testament hits at these things? Can you, can, you, can you just think of the number of times Paul talks about how as a son or daughter of God, our legal debts and our obligations have been canceled? The number of times he says that we have a new name, that we are his beloved, and instantly we are heir of all that the Father had. Here's three. His new father also became instantly liable for all his actions, his debts, his crimes, which I found very interesting. And Paul intentionally knowing this uses that. And lastly, the new son also had obligations to honor and please his father. All of this lies behind this passage. That's why Paul says, this is who you are, verse 12. Now, you and I, as adopted sons and daughters of God, have an obligation. And everybody listening to him immediately thought, of course. You know, son or daughter of God adopted into the heir family? Wow, that. And immediately, we're told. Now, you guys, why is this imagery of adoption so powerful and appropriate? If you're checking this morning, you ready? Adoption, becoming sons and daughters of God, is not something that we're born into. It's something that we're born again into. It's received by grace. It's received by grace. We receive our sonship. We receive our status. And we're reminded here this morning that there was a time when you and I were lost. That there was a time when we weren't naturally his children. Matter of fact, Ephesians 2, 3 says, we were by nature children for object of wrath and not of grace and love. This father-child relationship is not automatic. The Bible is very clear that we were at one time even orphans or slaves or both. Adoption as sons and daughters of God is received. Secondly, the image of adoption tells us that our relationship with God is based completely on a legal act by the father. You don't win your heavenly father. You and I don't negotiate for our heavenly father. We simply receive it. Something that was done only, only at an extreme cost and sacrifice to the father who adopts you and who adopts me. There's nothing that you and I could do, the Bible says, to win or to earn our status. It's simply received. That's why 1 John 3, 1, and this is maybe one of the key verses today. 1 John 3, 1, as, as, as John talks about our status, he says in the Greek, Behold, see it, grab a hold of it, what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called children of God. Behold, behold, church, behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. Are you beholding Are you seeing it? Is it experiencing it in your soul and in your life? Are you beholding? Are you seeing it? Are you being changed and transformed by it? Are you being melted by it? He did that for me. He did that for me. Nah, I know. For many of us, it's like, eh, son, daughter, whatever, you know. That's because, again, 
we trivialize the significance of what Jesus did on the cross. We over-accentuate and emphasize what we do or what we don't do to get in and stay on this relationship with God. Behold. Behold. What do you need to behold? There are four or five things that Paul talks about, and let's just go right through them. As sons and daughters of God, what is it that you and I are called to behold? Here it is, first and foremost, security. Security. Everybody say that with me, ready? Security. He says in verse 15, you have not received the spirit of fear that makes you a slave again, but you have received the spirit of sonship. How do you know if you don't embrace this, you're not beholding this? How do you know if you fail to truly, truly have this as a life-transforming force in your life? You operate in your Christian life mostly out of fear rather than out of confident joy and love. How do you know if you're operating in your Christian life out of fear and not out of confident joy and love? Here's a telltale sign. Every time I talk about how we are unconditionally loved and accepted by our Heavenly Father, immediately there's something inside of you that goes, but if you constantly talk about unconditional love and acceptance, what motivation is there for us to live a good life? What motivation is there for us to be holy, to be pure? If you're saying, if you talk about unconditional love, then that's going to remove people's motivation to live a godly life, then your motivation to living this Christian life, to following Christ and loving God, at the base of it is one thing, and it is fear. You take fear out, and for you, you have no other motivation. So your pure motivation of following God is, I'm afraid of being punished. I'm afraid of God kind of, you know, coming and kind of doing something to me. I'm afraid that this relationship might be taken away. Fear. Are you operating out of fear? Or out of confident joy? Do you have security in who you are? You know what's really interesting? Luke chapter 15 and the story of the prodigal son has kind of come alive in a new way for me. That story, more than just a lost son being found, it really teaches me that many of us could approach life two ways. We either approach God as an employee or a worker of his, or we could approach God as a son. What do I mean? Story of the prodigal son. He asks and demands his father for his share of the inheritance, which was unheard of anyway. Father gives it to him. He goes out and lives it in just wild, wild living. Wild living. And then he comes to his senses, or realizes his sin, and he says, I'm going to go back. But remember that story? He says, I'm going to go back, and I'm not even worthy to be called a child of God, a child of the Father. I'm not worthy to be called your son. So I'm just going to ask him to hire me as an employee, hire me as a servant, because I'm just not worthy. Truth be told, you and I approach God the same way. I'm talking to you, child of God. You and I approach God sort of as a worker, an employee, and kind of like, God, as I perform well, you're going to kind of give me what I deserve in my wages, answer to prayer, and, you know, uh, favorable circumstances, and so on and so forth. But I know if I blow it, and if I just kind of not perform as well, well, I'm going to get fired. You know how this works for me? (laughs) This is so embarrassing. I still operate out of this. It's like Saturday night, right, I'm preparing, like for today, and I'm going, how many times did I read the Bible this week? I read the Bible, okay. I really pray a lot this week. I pray a lot for this, yeah. Oh, I did five quiet times this week, so you know what? God's going to bless me. He's going to give me a good sermon this week. I know it. Some of us, it's, I had a really bad Saturday, so you know what? God can't possibly answer my prayer Saturday. I'm going to wait until I have a really good day, and then I'm going to go to God and say, God, will you answer this prayer? You know, I've been, a, I've been having a pretty bad couple of weeks, and uh, I don't expect God to kind of lead me and guide me and kind of, but once I kind of get my act together and kind of do the thing that I need to do, then my boss, my employee, will give me favorable circumstances. What is your approach to God? Is he your heavenly father? Or is he an employee or a boss that you work for? This is why Paul says right here in verse 15 that we receive the spirit of sonship. You know what Paul means by that? Paul's saying literally there that the Holy Spirit literally gives us 
gives us the ability to approach God as our heavenly father because he's saying by naturally, innately, on our own, we are normally going to approach God as a work, as a boss. We are normally going to approach God as an employer. We're going to normally approach God from this performance orientation. And Paul says, listen, the Holy Spirit exists. The Holy Spirit has come into your life to enable you to approach him as your heavenly father to give you deep security psychologically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually that you're his son, that you're his daughter. And no matter what you do, behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called children of God. Are you approaching him out of fear? Are you approaching him confident as a child? Here's another way that I, I realize we could tell if you're approaching him with the security as a son or a daughter or as an employee and a worker. It's how we treat each other. Do you know what we're literally saying to God sometimes when we go, brothers and sisters in Christ, I don't like her. I don't like him. She annoys me. He bothers the God of me. Why am I part of this? You know what we're saying? It's like we're going to our Heavenly Father and going, I like you, but I hate your kids. You know what, <laughs> Heavenly Father, this whole thing, this is great. I love it. This is awesome. But uh, your kids, not so much. This is why throughout the book of John, John says, the extent of love that you have for each other shows how much you get this truth. That you're just an adopted son. You're just an adopted daughter. And that grace extended to you has been grace extended to your flawed, very flawed human being, brothers and sisters around you. How do you treat them? How do we treat each other? Okay. Next thing. Not just security, but intimacy. Intimacy. Look at verse 15 again. He says, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And here we need to know the original language. And some of you already know this. Abba was an intimate word, an Aramaic word that literally meant Papa or Dada. And this is kind of a cross-cultural, universal language. First words out of, out of Parker's mouth was not Mama. The first words out of his mouth. I'm serious, parents, can you relate? First words out of his mouth was Dada. Da da, da da, da da. That's literally what this word means, Aramaic. Da da. It's an intimate, intimate, intimate word of familiarity. It's an intimate word of deep knowledge. It's an intimate word of intimacy. Abba. But you know what's powerful though? For those of you sitting there going, I knew that already. Come on, get on to another thing. Here's the word that I totally missed every time I read that verse. It says, and therefore we cry. Abba. And the word cry is a strong word. It's an emotional word filled with deep emotion. It's a powerful, it's a powerful cry of the soul. It's a powerful cry of the heart. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a deep yearning. It's not just, Abba, Abba. It is a child or a baby. Ah, Abba. It's a cry of intensity. It's a cry of deep emotion. Why is it powerful? Two things. Number one. Cry, Abba, means there's knowledge that's just beyond theological, biblical, theoretical, intellectual, doctrinal. It's a cry of a child that knows that God is not distant. That God is not far away. That God is near. That God is close. It's a cry of a child. When a child cries, Abba, it's a cry that arises out of a deep innate knowledge that his or her dada is just in the other room ready immediately to get up out of bed. We cry. Abba. The flip side of that, it's not just a knowledge of the child to the father, but it's the father to the child. Do you know, for those of you that are parents, and those of you that are not, I'm sorry, those of you that are not, but hopefully you can kind of relate. Do you know that there is something that arises in a parent when they hear their children crying? It's the funniest thing. Actually, it's not funny. It's pretty intense. The first time Parker cried, cried out. I was laying in bed. 
My wife will probably tell you a different story, but believe my side of the story, okay? <laughs> Those first couple of weeks he'd been home, and we're going through it with Sophie as well. There was this wail. I mean, it was, and eventually Jenny and I figured out that, that she was breastfeeding Parker, and, 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 and he wasn't taking the milk, and so he was just hungry. It was an intense cry of hunger, and we couldn't figure it out. We're just, and he started wailing and wailing and wailing, and I can't, I'm going to try my best, best to explain to you. It's literally like from my toes to, 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 to all of my body. It's this intense adrenaline rush, everything, just kind of an, an intensity that just arose, that literally I mean, I jumped. I've never jumped that out in my life. I jumped out of bed with Jenny, and we ran into our son and, 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 and held him. And he wouldn't stop crying. He wouldn't stop crying. Jenny and I are crying because he wouldn't stop crying. We're holding him, holding him. And the louder he cries out, the more intense and the more intense and the more intense and the more intense, my love for my son. You know what I'm realizing? Then intensity of the love that I have for my son is just as intense, if not more, when he starts crying because of stupid things he did. A father doesn't distinguish. He's crying because I told you, Parker, not to run in front of that swing two weeks ago. There's this big old girl. I mean, she was big. I'm going, what is a big girl like you doing in a small park like this for little kids? You know, and there's a big old swing in this new park, and she's swinging back and forth. I mean, I mean, she could have hit me, and I could have been knocked out unconscious, you know? <laughs> and Paco's right next to it, and he's good. You know, he's got that little, you know, he's like, uh, uh, you know, he's doing one of these things, and he's swinging. And before I knew it, when I just looked up, he took off. And imagine, this is swinging. Just as he took off, it's like she went, and with all of the force of her magnitude... It was a cosmic, seismic, you know. I mean, literally, it couldn't have been. And Parker literally flew like four or five feet in the air, landed on this star. He had a cut on his neck. And you know what the powerful thing is? Listen, and I'm not even just saying just exaggerate. The first instinct, of course, is, oh, I told you not. For literally like a blink of a second, the next thing I knew, I'm on the ground. I'm picking him up. And as he is crying and weeping and weeping and weeping, I'm not sitting there going, I told you not to do that. I told you not to touch that. That doesn't even enter your mind as a father. The intensity of the love that you have for your child as they cry, Abba. That's the kind of intimacy, security your heavenly father has with you. See, we think... I got myself into this, and I'm God, I'm hurting, I'm in pain. And you think God's going, well, I just need you to sit there for a while because you just got to learn your life. You know what? The intensity of his love for your cry never diminishes. Not once. Not once. Security and intimacy. Next. This is so powerful. Assurance. Assurance. Says the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirits. And for those of you that are sitting there, hopefully this will be a light bulb that'll kind of go on. Paul is responding to a question that many of you and I are asking, which is, Peter, you're saying all that, and I'm a parent, I can relate, but I'm I'm single. I don't know what that means. How do I know? How do I know for sure? How does this happen and work in my life? And Paul answers that question. He says, when we cry out to God as Abba, the Bible says, this is, I, I don't even do a good job of explaining this, so just check with me. When we cry, Abba, the Bible says, here's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit somehow comes alongside of us. Paraclete is another Greek word for Holy Spirit. Comes alongside of us. And somehow the Holy Spirit kind of works in our hearts in a way that he gives us assurance. He gives us this innate inner assurance and awareness that he is our Heavenly Father. And they were his child. Actually, the Greek word, this is interesting. The Greek word is martyria, from which we get the English word martyr. And here's the scene that Paul is picturing here about what the Holy Spirit does. Imagine a courtroom, and you are on trial for a crime that you did not commit, okay? And, 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 the, and the prosecuting, uh, prosecuting attorneys are coming, and they're leveling out all these evidence that's against you. And then the defense attorneys are coming and leveling all these things that are for you. And all of a sudden, without even knowing it, the defense attorney brings about a star witness, Martyria, who comes and says, I was there. 
I was there when Peter was there. And you know what? He didn't do what you are claiming that he did. And with that expert witness, this is a picture that Paul is painting, all of a sudden, the case is dismissed, and all of a sudden, all the questions are answered. And listen to what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, the Spirit comes alongside and when you're struggling, when you're having a hard time, when you're going, God, I feel forsaken. God, I feel neglected. God, I'm scared. I'm fearful. The Holy Spirit comes alongside and says, you're his beloved. But I don't believe it. I can't feel it. Holy Spirit comes along and says, I testify. I witness. You are his. You are his. One author said this. The witness of the Spirit is related to the cry that issues from our hearts, Abba, Father. It is by Him, the Spirit, that we utter this cry. In this very cry for help, the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirits that we are indeed God's children. He works in the inner recesses of our being to persuade us that we belong to the Father. It is a deep inward consciousness that comes to the surface in times of crisis. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Holy Spirit does. Let me just give you one quick example and then we'll move on. Do you know when this powerfully works and when we need it the most is when we're going through suffering. For whatever reason, there are a lot of folks in our church family right now who are going through suffering, really, really hard times. And here's how I'm seeing two groups of people responding. I'm seeing one group of people who are responding this way. They're angry. They're mad at God. And that's okay. I tell people, if you want to be angry at God, be angry at God. Be mad at God. Don't repress it. But their anger and their, 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 their upset is driven by this. They're, it's driven by this rationale going, God, look at all that I've done for you. God, I've kept my nose clean. I'm doing all these things for you. I don't deserve this. Or they're saying, what more do I need to do? I'm not a very good Christian. I should have done more. I should have done better. Because if I did, then these things were not. And they're responding and then there's another group over a year, few, but who are responding to suffering differently. Number one, they're secure in who they are in Christ, that he is their heavenly father and that they are their son or daughter. And you know what's prompting them to respond? And you know what that prompts them to respond? They don't, they don't respond by saying, ah, oh, what am I doing wrong? Or God, they respond this way. They say, God, I'm angry, I'm mad, God, I'm hurting, and I'm scared. But God, whatever this is, is not retribution. It's not punishment. Jesus Christ died for all my punishment. And secondly, God, you're my heavenly father. And so whatever that I'm going through, it's not just for no reason. It's not because you want. It's for reason that's beyond my understanding. And my confidence rests in the fact that, one, you're a God who, with, has, who, 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 who has scars. You're a God who has suffered for me and with me. You're a God who's not immune to suffering. You're the only God of the universe who has scars to show that you do not suffer alone. And secondly... Whatever the suffering is, God, I can't know it. Nobody can tell me it. But if the ultimate suffering of the ultimate Son of God led to the glorious truth of our salvation in Him, if the ultimate suffering of God led to the redemption of the whole world, God, I know that somehow, in some way, this thing that I'm going through, beyond my understanding, will lead to a greater glory for yourself, a greater good for me, and redemption of the world. And so, God, the Holy Spirit come and witness and witness and witness. It doesn't mean that you don't struggle. It doesn't mean that it still doesn't hurt. When the Holy Spirit comes alongside of you and does his ministry, it makes a world of difference. Because of time, I'm just going to go do one more and then, and then I want to pray. Go to the last one, you guys, which is inheritance, okay? Which is inheritance. It says, now we are children, then heirs. Let me just end with this. The reason why this is so powerful is this. Paul says, and I, again, I don't, even, I don't even claim to know how to explain this well. Remember what Paul has been saying. In that culture, the heir or the oldest, and they alone got all of the inheritance. Nobody else. All of it. And the reason why they did that was because they wanted to make sure that the family stayed intact and not be divided with power struggles. And in a stunning turn of events, Paul says, you are all co-heirs with Jesus. You are all co-heirs with Jesus. In other words, everything that Jesus has coming to him, you are going to participate in. Somebody please explain that to me, okay? You are going to participate in. You are going to enjoy. You are going to be a partaker of as a co-heir of Christ. Let me put it this way as an imagery. Luke 15, 
That story really actually is more about the older son than the younger son. Because remember, the younger son comes and the father says, Quick, go get the ring. Quick, go get the robe. Quick, go get the sandals. Quick, fill the fat and calf. Do you know why the older brother, Luke 15, got so mad? Because the ring belonged to him as the oldest son. The robe, that was his inheritance. Oldest son. The sandals, his, the oldest And Jesus in a stunning turn says in Hebrews chapter 2, you are my brothers. You know what that means? Because of everything that Jesus has done for you, he's not like the older brother who says, give that back to me. Jesus comes back and says, my ring, it's yours. Take it. My robe, it's yours. Take it. My sandals, it's yours. Take. What is that going to look like? I don't know, but I am sure looking forward to it. You are co-heirs. He is the perfect older brother. You know, I, I just, uh, I want to, uh, I want to do this here this morning. Before we go, because this, this whole witness and ministry of the Holy Spirit it's something we've been talking about, but I believe that we want, I believe that God wants to minister to us through that way. And here's, here's what I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask that perhaps for some of us who are maybe bold enough to say this morning <laughs> uh, that ministry of the Holy Spirit where he comes alongside and witnesses that I am his child. I tell you what, Peter, I need that today like more than ever. Not only have I been in doubt and wrestling with that for like last two, three months, but it's been years. I need my Heavenly Father and His ministry to come. As my brothers and sisters in the Church of God, family of God, pray for me to be mine. So I'm just simply asking this morning, and you don't even have to share with anybody what your issues are, motivational level, root motivation. Would you mind just standing from where you are? And I just would like for the rest of our church family to come around and just spend time praying over you, blessing you, praying that the Spirit of God would come. Spirit of God would come. This is a prayer that he answers. Spirit of God would come. And he would begin to witness, 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 witness who you are, your identity, your security in him. Do you need that this morning? Stand from where you are. I want to pray for you, okay? Okay? We're going to wait. We're going to wait until anybody, anybody else. Anybody else? Don't be shy. Don't be shy. It's okay. Again, I don't, I don't, we don't need to know what the issues are. It's, it's common for many of us. Anybody else? I'm just going to wait. Anybody else? Heart, heart, heart. Come on. For those of you that have been just tempted to even walk away this morning, anybody else? Anybody else? Okay. Anybody else? Anybody else? Okay. Anybody else? Yeah, worship team, you guys can come on. We're going to, okay. For those of you that are standing, not just front, back of them, but like literally, just kind of, as you see them, go around your brothers and your sisters, okay? As you see them, please get up, okay? And will you lay your hands on them? Will you lay your hands on them, okay? For those of you that are too far away from folks, you could just go ahead and pray right now for yourself. You could go ahead and pray right now for somebody else in your life, your family, whoever, that, that, that needs to hear from God this morning, Okay? And this ministry of the Spirit, but for those of our brothers and sisters, thank you guys. Thank you for being the church, okay? Make sure that there's nobody who has stood is without, without somebody who is next to them, without somebody who is near them, okay? And church, let's just go ahead and begin to pray. Church, let's go ahead and begin to minister to each other and to one another. And your prayer is very simple. It's Holy Spirit of God, as you already live and reside in the hearts of my brothers and sisters, Holy Spirit of God, will you come right now? Begin to remind, begin to, to, to minister, begin to witness, 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 witness with our spirits, with their spirits, that they are your beloved child, that they're beloved son and daughter of God, that they are unconditionally loved, they are the recipient of an infallible love, that they are recipient and, 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 and eligible for God's unconditional love for them. Church, lift up your voice and lift up your brothers and your sisters unto the Lord. Let's pray together, church. Let's pray together, church. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, God. We lift up. Hallelujah, Jesus. We lift up. We lift up each other unto you, Lord. 
Father, remember that they are your children. Remember they are your sons. They are your daughters. Remember, oh God, that they are your precious. They are the apple of your eye. Remember, Lord God, that you have redeemed them, that you have saved them, God. Remember, Lord God, that you have healed them, God, that you have renewed them, God. Remember, Lord Jesus, that they stand utterly and absolutely solid in you. Remember, remember, remember your promises. Remember your word, God. Remember your covenant, God. Remember, 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 Jesus. Your ministry unto their lives, Lord God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Father, we lift up our brothers and our sisters unto you, Lord. And God, I pray, I pray for them, and I pray for myself, Lord. Father, the ones with enough courage who stood and say, I need the ministry of the Spirit, God, our prayer is simple, God. Remind them today, Father, may the powerful witness of the Holy Spirit come alongside, come forth, Lord. And God, remind us and do the work that only you can do, God. We cannot in our natural state conjure up this feeling on our own. We need you in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. As hands are laid, as prayers are lifted up, God, we pray and ask for the anointing, Lord God, and the outpouring of your Spirit. God, we need you. 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 Oh, oh, Lord, I worship you because of who you are. Church, let's all stand together as we sing together. And you hear us when we cry out to you. Father, may the assurance of that powerful truth melt us, mold us, amaze us, ravish us. We worship you. We worship you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Next week we begin a brand new sermon series, powerful, important sermon series. Invite your family and friends. We'll see you back here next Sunday, you guys. Have a great week.